Um, this, the story we're going to look at this morning is, is one that's potentially very familiar to many of you. There's probably many of us who have read this story lots and lots of times. Uh, there may be some of you here this morning, this is the first time you're hearing this story, and that's great. Like, I really hope that you're encouraged by it. Um, as I was thinking on it this week, it was a story I know that I've, I've read countless times in my life just because I grew up in church and stuff, and I was trying to think of like, how, Lord, how do we make this story come alive to us? How do we make it not just another Bible story that we've heard before? Um, and I was trying to think of examples in my life where I've been in situations like what we've read, uh, like what we're going to read in this text. And the, the story that kept coming to me felt so lightweight compared to the weight of the story we're going to look at. But it's the only thing I kept thinking of is how to, how to get us into the mode of thinking what the story is about. So I'm going to share the story with you, but just know that it, it pales in comparison with the, some of the weight of what we're going to see this morning. Um, when I was a kid, I, I lived in Florida for about eight years from like second grade uh, on up for, for like the next six, seven, eight years of my life, I guess. And uh, my family was really big into water skiing. And so we'd go out every weekend. Uh, we had a boat and um, we'd go to a place called Black Creek. It wasn't really a creek. It was more of a river, um, but it was perfect water skiing. I mean, the, the water was always like glass. So water skiing, wakeboarding was always perfect. Um, and we would ski all day. And then there was this great place on the river. There was like a little beachy area. We could pull our boat up and there was this gigantic live oak tree that grew out over the river. And you could climb up this live oak tree and, and about 25 or 30 feet over the water, the branches kind of split and there was a perfect spot for jumping off into the water. And the, the river right there was like 20 or 30 feet deep, so it was a great spot. Um, I'll never forget the very first time I climbed that tree and sat there and tried to convince myself to jump. I was nine or 10 years old. I'd seen my big brother and my dad like go up there and jump and I was like, all right, I'm gonna do it today. So I remember climbing up that tree and just sitting there and letting my feet dangle 25 feet above the water and my heart just pounding through my chest like I'm scared to death. Am I actually going to jump? I sat there for 10 or 15 minutes trying to push myself over the edge and I just couldn't do it. I was too scared. And I saw my dad and my brother and my mom packing everything up to get into the boat to do some more skiing. And I was like, well, it's not my day. I'll just do it another day. And I turned around to go back down the tree. And as I'm going down the tree, I see my dad coming up behind me, totally blocking my way down. And he gets up behind me and he says, Aaron, I can't let you climb down this tree. I'm like, excuse me? He says, I can't let you climb down this tree because if I let you climb down this tree, you're always going to be afraid to climb this tree. And you're going to have a fear of heights. He's like, you've come up here to do this thing. Now you need to do it. I'm right here with you. You need to do it. Man, I remember I was nine, maybe 10. I just remember looking at my dad like, are you kidding me? You're going to make me jump out of a tree? Like you're my dad. How, how could the, the one man in my life who's supposed to love me the most, how could he push me into a situation that causes so much fear for me? I mean, like, you know, it doesn't sound like a big deal, but as a nine-year-old, I'm like crying. I'm like, Dad, I really don't want to do it, Dad. He's like, you can do it, bud. You can do it. You just need to jump. I was so scared. And I look back on that now, and I kind of ask the same question. I have boys of my own, and I'm like, would I do the same thing? How could this man who's supposed to love me more than anyone push me into a situation that make me so uncomfortable, that brought about so much fear? You know, I ended up jumping, and I loved it. Like, I wanted to do it again after that, you know, and I love jumping off of big things. And um, I got over my fear, and my dad helped me come over this fear. But today, we're, we're going to encounter the disciples in a very similar situation, where they're going to be with the one they've chosen to follow, with the one that they've given their lives to, and they find themselves in a situation that he led them into where they are racked with fear. 
asking the question, why in the world did you bring me here? Jesus, why did you bring us to this place full of fear and full of doubt? Um, I'm going to give you a reminder just of where we are in the story, okay? Mark chapter 4. You'll remember at the beginning of Mark, like the first three chapters, Mark tells the story very action-oriented. And so every time we find Jesus in Mark chapter 1 through 3, there's kind of action. It's like Jesus is going here, Jesus is going to the synagogue, or Jesus is going down by the lake, or Jesus is going into somebody's house, or Jesus is healing a sick person, or casting out a demon. It's always like action-oriented. Jesus is always doing something. But then in chapter 4, just a few weeks back, we started with chapter 4, and we noticed that Mark has Jesus kind of pause with the action. He's in a boat, pushed off from the shore, and he's teaching a huge crowd of people. And almost all of Mark chapter 4 is just Jesus teaching. It's a change of pace in Mark's story. But at the end of Mark, we're going to find him kind of picking back up in the action. And that's where we are today, the very end of Mark chapter 4. Starting in verse 35, Mark is going to get back into the action of Jesus' life. Uh, So let's start reading. Jesus has just finished teaching. It says, that day, starting in verse 35, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. And Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, he rebuked the wind, and he said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified, and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the word of the Lord out of Mark chapter 4. Now, now this story is one of the most fantastic stories that we have of the life of Jesus. And I want to take a moment before we get into kind of unpacking each verse. I just want to make something really clear. Like, this story is really hard to believe. And if you've heard it your whole life, maybe you've just kind of like accepted it. But just think about this. How many of you have ever stood in the face of a tornado and said, hey, knock it off. Shut up. And it listened to you. Like, none of us have ever done that, right? None of us have probably ever even tried that because it just sounds crazy and ludicrous. But this is what happened. I mean, Jesus stood in the face of a storm and he said, quiet, be still. And everything went still. Now, secular scholars, when they approach the Bible, they usually look for situations like this and they say, this could not have happened. Jesus may be a historical person, but he could not have had this kind of power. And they'll try to discount stories like this. And this is usually one of the first ones they come to and say, no way, there's no way this could have happened. And this story is contained in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but Mark's story is a little bit different, and it's different in a way that's actually pretty significant. You see, scholars who study ancient texts, they have different criteria that help them determine whether or not the story is an account of an eyewitness or just a story that has been passed along orally, like an oral tradition. And one of the ways, one of these criteria is if there are irrelevant details in the story. Because see, irrelevant details are usually a sign that somebody was there and actually saw it. And they tell these details just because it's what they remember. It's what they saw happen. Someone who's making up a story might include some details, but those details usually help to further the story, to help the story keep going. But in Mark's telling of this story, 
There's all these little irrelevant details that just don't make much sense, don't have anything to do with the story. I mean, look, look in verse 36. It says, they took him in the boat just as he was, and there were also other boats with him. It has nothing to do with the story. It's just like this random detail kind of popped there in the middle. Look in verse 38. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. Okay, so Jesus had a pillow. Like, it has absolutely nothing to do with the story. It's this small detail that Mark includes for no reason to advance the story. These little details make this text really hard for scholars who want to disprove that this actually happened. Because it sounds like somebody who was actually there, who actually saw what was happening. Now, Mark, who's telling this story, he was not there. But the apostle Peter was. And most believe that Mark was a a disciple of Peter's. He was a student of Peter's. And what they believe is that this is actually Peter's eyewitness account of what happened that day. Peter in the boat with Jesus, watching these events unfold. So we can trust pretty heavily that this event actually happened. That real people, just like you, just like me, were sitting there. People who've never seen a storm just die. They watched it that day. And then they passed the story along to Mark so he could record it. Okay? So this is a trustworthy account. Let's jump into the, into the uh, story, though. We're going to go verse by verse, and I want us to see two kind of main themes here. First, I want us to focus on the disciples in the storm. So the disciples in the storm, and then we're going to look at Jesus' response to the disciples, okay? So we're going to look at the disciples in the storm, and then we're going to look at Jesus' response to the disciples. So verse 35, that day when evening came. Now this has been a long day for Jesus and for the disciples, okay? For, as far as we can tell, this is potentially the same day back in verse chapter 3 where, where Jesus calls the apostles to himself, and he says, hey, I want you to be with me. I know you. I want you to follow me and, and walk with me. And then it's also the same day where he goes and does some teaching and some of the religious leaders come and accuse him of being a follower of Satan. And Jesus defends himself. It's the same day where he gets in a boat and pushes off and teaches these huge crowds for probably several hours. It has been a long day. And it says the end of the day came and Jesus says, let us go over to the other side. Now they're on the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee at its widest point is probably about eight miles wide. And so we're looking at at least, if, even if they're at one of the more narrow parts of the lake, we're looking at at least a two-hour sailing trip to get to the other side. So I don't know about you, but if I'm the disciples and I'm in this boat and I'm tired, it's like, I'm ready just to go back to my house. Like, let's just go back to the shore. Let's call it a day, Jesus. Let's take a break. And Jesus is like, no, hey, lift up your anchors. We're going to go across the lake. And so they all pull up their anchors. They start going. And what does Jesus do? Jesus just goes to sleep. They're all left like manning the ship, sailing across the ocean or the sea. And Jesus just goes down and he decides to take a nap. Okay. So you can imagine being the disciples. Now look in verse 37. It says, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. This word squall, is, it, it, it's the same word that they would use to describe a hurricane. I mean, this is a massive storm. Now, the Sea of Galilee is an interesting kind of geographical phenomenon. It, it sits about 700 feet below sea level. And then about 30 miles to the north is Mount Horeb, and it, it rises to just over 9,000 feet above sea level. Now, I don't know if any of you are meteorologists, but what happens when you take really warm, tepid air that's been sitting on a sea that's really low, and then you take really high, cool air, and the two of them come together? You get a serious storm. That's what happens in the spring around here, right? That's why we see thunderstorms and tornadoes. It's because cool air and warm air come together and they don't like each other very well and they don't mix. So you end up with a storm. These types of storms were quite typical in the Sea of Galilee. 
In fact, today, if you go to the Sea of Galilee, fishermen and those who work on the sea will talk about these very storms that still come up today on this particular body of water. Now, we get an understanding of how severe this particular storm was by the reaction of the disciples. Let's not forget that at least four of these guys were professional fishermen. Like, it's what they did. They, they lived, they got their livelihood from this body of water. Growing up, they got their livelihood from it. They watched their dads fish on this very same sea. And they were used to these storms. And yet in this story, their response is one of utter fear. They're at their wit's end. They're scared. Look in verse 38. It says that Jesus was asleep. The disciples woke to him, woke him up, and they said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Teacher, don't you care? You imagine them, they're bailing water, they're freaking out, the sail's ripping, and they're coming down, and they find Jesus asleep. You can imagine them shaking him, teacher, don't you care? Don't you give a rip? We're about to die. And I think this is one of those moments where we find ourselves most able to relate to the disciples. I mean, this is very real fear that they're feeling. Most of us have had these moments in our lives, Right? I think anyone who's ever tried to believe in the goodness of God, anybody who's ever tried to live a life of faith in Jesus in, in this broken and, and hurting world has felt like this before. It's that, that season, that, that, that period of time where things just don't seem to be going the way you want them to. That no matter how hard you try, you can't bring the ends together and make things work. It's it's that season where there's not enough money in your life and you can't make ends meet and you're struggling to know how you're going to make it work the next month. It's that time when your friends are hurting and no matter what you say, you can't seem to bring them comfort. It's that season where your marriage is just on the rocks and you're not sure what's going to happen and no matter what you try, you can't seem to get it together with your spouse. It's that, that time when you can't escape anxiety or depression that's lingering in your heart, or an addiction that you just you can't shake. It's that time when your heart just refuses to be healed from that betrayal that you felt. It's when the cancer is not shrinking and it just seems to be getting worse no matter how much you pray or what the doctors do. It's, it's when you've lost your job and you feel hopeless or when you can't find a job that you need. It's when you didn't get into the school that you wanted. It's when you can't find the spouse that you've always dreamed of. It's, it's when your loved one unexpectedly died in an accident and you're left going, God, where are you? I remember the, the first time I ever felt this way. I was an undergraduate student. I was probably 22 or 23 years old. and um, I was doing my fifth year of school, trying to graduate. Most of my friends had already graduated or were about to graduate and already had jobs lined up. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. I could not get my finger on it. All of my friends were getting married. Several of my friends already had kids, and I couldn't get a relationship to last longer than two weeks. And I can remember I met this young woman at this point, and I just convinced myself that she had to be the right one. She had to be it. And so I tried to make it work, and we had this really messy, nasty relationship. We'd date on and off. We'd break up, get back together, break up, get back together. I remember it was during one of those breakups that I kind of hit this low point for me spiritually that, that I'd never experienced before. I can remember it was the first time that I ever really began to understand what depression really feels like. The mornings would come and my alarm clock would go off and I just did not want to get out of bed. I could not get out of bed. 
I would hit snooze over and over again. During this time, I can remember being in my car driving to class or to work, and I would turn the radio on and turn it up loud just to try to block out kind of the sadness that was just lurking behind the curtain in my brain, always threatening, always threatening. I can remember being with my friends and smiling and trying to make myself feel happy when inside what I really felt was kind of this just emptiness and this cloud. I remember one of these nights I was sitting at my house watching TV and I had the remote and my, nobody was home. I was home by myself. I've got the TV on. I'm just trying to zone out this cloud that seems to be just be tugging and clinging to my heart. And it wouldn't go away. I remember I, I, I turned off the TV and I started to pray and I was just mad. I was just mad, like frustrated with God. And I can remember it was the first time that I really decided to be honest with God. And I threw the remote and I remember walking around my living room just going, where are you, God? What do you want from me? And just feeling this emptiness and just crying out to him like I never had before. I was scared. I was confused. I was angry. I felt let down by this God that I had tried to give my life to as best that I could. And this is where we find the disciples in this story. And they've been watching Jesus do all of these things, all these miracles, and yet here they are out at sea, and they are freaked out, thinking that their ship is about to sink to the bottom of the sea. And this one that they've called Lord is just lying there asleep, not even responding to their cries for help. And it's in this moment that we really need to pay attention to how Jesus responds. It's in this moment of being afraid, of being scared, of being at our wit's end, of trying everything that we know to do and it's not working. It's in this moment that we really need to look at how Jesus responds. So we've seen the disciples in the storm and their fear. We've all felt it. And now let's look and see what Jesus does. I think we're going to see three things in Jesus' response. We're going to see first Jesus' compassion. We're going to see Jesus' power. And then we're going to see Jesus' challenge. See, Jesus' compassion, his power, and his challenge. Let's start with his compassion. You know, essentially, the, the disciples are attacking the very heart of Jesus. I mean, they are questioning his very character, his very nature. I mean, they're saying to him, look, you don't care. Do you care? That's what they say. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? We thought you were good. We thought you were one worth following, and yet here we are in despair and you're asleep. Don't you care? The most amazing thing happens, though. They come to Jesus with this accusation, and Jesus, Jesus responds. Look in verse 39. It gives us these three words. It says, he got up. He got up. Now, the original, the, the Greek word that is used there, is, it, it carries with it an implication that he was roused, that he woke and he was fully awake in an instant, that Jesus was there with them. They went to get him and he got up. I mean, can you see the compassion of Jesus in this? How incredible, how encouraging that even though they come with accusations of Jesus, your heart is not as good as we thought it was, he gets up and he meets them where they are. I think sometimes we're in, the, we're in the midst of our own storms, we're in that low point. Sometimes we're, we're afraid to truly be honest with God. We're afraid to truly state our doubts and state our fears. And we pray in the middle of the storm in a way that's almost like we're trying to convince God that we do have faith. 
In a lot of ways, we're trying to convince ourselves that we have faith. But in, in Jesus' compassionate response to the disciples, he shows us, he says, look, it is okay for you to be honest, for you to be real, for you to be vulnerable with God. He, he can take it. He can shoulder whatever complaints you have. He can shoulder your doubts. He can handle your questions. What he wants is your heart, and as long as you're being fake with him, he cannot have your heart. And so the disciples come to Jesus full of their doubt, full of their fear, and they say, don't you care? And he responds with compassion. He gets up, and he meets them where they are. Are you struggling to believe that Jesus sees you? Just tell him. Tell him. Say, Jesus, don't you care? Are you struggling to have faith in his ability to get you out of the storm that you're in? Tell him. Just tell him. Trust him and trust in his compassion. This story is so consistent with the character and nature of God that we are given throughout the entire Bible, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. This, this is a picture of the character of God. One, one story in particular in, in Psalm 107. Many believe this is kind of a prophetic foreshadowing of this event that we're looking at. Um, I'm going to read it if you want to turn to it, Psalm 107. It's page 421 in our Bibles. The similarity in this story and the story that the disciples find themselves in with Jesus is striking. I'm going to start in verse 23 of Psalm 107. And again, this is, this is poetic literature in the Old Testament. If you're not familiar, this is not an actual story. This is just a poem uh, that somebody wrote hundreds of years before Jesus was around. It says, Others went out on the sea in ships. They were merchants on the mighty waters. They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and stirred up a tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens and went down to the depths. And in their peril... Their courage melted away. They reeled and staggered like drunken men. They were at their wit's end, and they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed, and they were glad when it grew calm. And he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love. This is a picture of God's heart over and over and over again. We see this in the Old Testament, that when God's people are at their lowest point, at their wit's end, and they cry out to him, he hears them. He is moved with compassion. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. And when we cry out to him, he will respond with compassion. He will meet you where you are. And this picture of God's heart is what we see embodied in the man, Jesus Christ. It's the same character, the same heart. It's the same person. Jesus responding in compassion, he got up. He immediately was with them where they were. The second thing we see is Jesus' power. See, not only is Jesus compassionate, he also has the power to do something about the storm. You know, from the time we started studying Mark in chapter one, one of Mark's main thrusts is, is try to help us see the unbelievable power and authority that Jesus has. I mean, from the very beginning when Jesus shows up in Mark and he's baptized and you get this voice from heaven to when he goes and he starts casting out demons and healing the sick, Mark is trying to say, look, I want you to notice this. The all-powerful, the all-authoritative God has come. 
He has come as a man in the body, in the person of Jesus Christ. And this story is no different. Mark is trying to get our attention by accounting real events that happened with Jesus. He's trying to say, look, pay attention to who this man is. He has all power, all authority. And two amazing things happen when Jesus gets up. Two amazing things. The first, the first thing is that Jesus just speaks three words. The reason this is amazing is, can you imagine? I mean, you go, you're one of the disciples. You go to Jesus, teacher, don't you care to wake up? You've got like a bucket in hand so that he can help you start bailing water. You're hoping that he'll come help you. And Jesus goes up and he says, and he just says three words. I mean, I can imagine Thomas, you know, Thomas is a disciple that we give a hard time because he struggled with doubt. He goes to get Jesus and he's like, Jesus, start bailing. Come on, get to work. And Jesus gets up and he just goes, I'm like, quiet, be still. You know, or, or maybe there's Peter, Peter who had this flair for the dramatic and he's, he's expecting Jesus to like pull a Moses and like get up and like pound a staff and part the sea so they can all walk through on dry ground. But none of this is what happens. It's the most simple, most amazing and ridiculous thing. Like Jesus gets up, he goes up on top of the boat and he just speaks three words, quiet, be still. Like a parent talking to an unruly child. I mean, I have to use more force with that in dealing with my three-year-old. And Jesus is talking to a hurricane. It's amazing. Quiet. Be still. The second amazing thing, and perhaps the more amazing thing, is that the storm actually listens. I mean, the storm obeys him. Keep reading in verse 39. It says, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He's describing what happened to the wind and what happened to the waves. The wind died and the waves. The picture that is being painted here is a picture of complete calm and complete serenity. When I was a kid, we we had a pool in our backyard and we used to do this thing where we'd lay on a raft and get under the diving board and like do like this on the diving board and try to make waves. And then other people would get their like boogie boards or something like this and do this. And we'd try to make our pool into a wave pool as best as we could. When I stopped trying to make waves, when all of us stopped, the waves didn't stop. If you've ever done that, you know that when you stop trying to make the waves, the waves keep going. That's why we would do it. We'd try to make waves and then we'd get out there and like float around trying to make ourselves seasick in our pool, you know? But in this story, Jesus stops the wind, and it's not just the wind that stops, but the the sea itself, the water, the waves and the water, just calm, still, total tranquility. I mean, can we grasp the power of Jesus Christ? He gets up, he has compassion. He does three, he speaks three simple words, and the seas and the waves obey him. There's something significant happening in here in the way that Mark tells the story. The word that he uses for rebuke when it says Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves and the word that he used for quiet, it's the same exact word that's used in Mark chapter one the first time Jesus comes to a man with an evil spirit. And in that story, what, what Mark is trying to say is like, look, this man, Jesus, has all power and authority over everything spiritual. He's doing the same thing in this story. This man, Jesus Christ, has all power and authority, not just over spiritual things. He has power and authority over the physical creation. Like everything is his. Everything obeys him. Like a child obeying its parents. There's only one other place in the Bible where we see this kind of authority over creation, and it's in the actual creation story itself. 
where God himself says, let there be light. He speaks words and light appears. Same God embodied in Jesus Christ speaks words and the wind and the waves obey him. This is the man, Jesus Christ, full of compassion for us when we're at our lowest points and full of power to do something about it. This is also kind of where the rub is, right? You know, the, the power doesn't always get exercised the way that we want it to. You know, we, we come and we want Christ, we think his power should always just be used to alleviate our suffering or to pull us out of the source of our fears immediately and right away. But this doesn't always happen, does it? Part of why the disciples were so afraid, they had trusted Jesus to help them and walk with them, and yet here they find themselves in the midst of a life-threatening storm. And Jesus deals with this confusion in his question to the disciples. And this is the challenge. We've looked at the compassion. We've looked at the power. And this is the challenge that Jesus gives. Look in verse 40. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Why are you so afraid? Can you imagine? I mean, what a dumb question. <laughs> I mean, seriously. Imagine being one of the disciples. You're standing there with a bucket in your hand. You're shin deep in water. Your boat is about to go down. Your, your sail is ripped from the mast and hanging limp. Then Jesus looks at you and says, why are you so afraid? <laughs> really, Jesus? <laughs> like, are you serious? I'll tell you why I'm afraid. We're about to drown. But with this question, what Jesus is going to do is prod into the deepest parts of their heart. He's going to prod into the deepest areas of their trusting in him. And he's trying to help them see something deeper. And he's going to do the same for us. In the middle of our suffering, in the middle of our storm, he will ask us the same question. Why are you so afraid? And there's so much underneath that question. We cannot miss this. Many of us, we come to God or we come to Jesus with the expectation that if, if, if God is all powerful, then the storm should never come. We shouldn't have to deal with suffering and pain. Or that if Jesus is truly compassionate, and he truly loves us, then these bad things wouldn't happen in our lives. But this is not the picture that we're given of what it looks like to follow Jesus in this world. The picture that we're given of what it looks like to follow Jesus in this world is a lot what it looked like for Jesus to live in this world. He lived a life marked by suffering. And we see pretty clearly, actually back in verse 35, remember what Jesus said, let us go over? The language there literally means let us pass through. Or let us go through. And it's as if Jesus knew. He knew. He knew exactly what they were about to get into. He knew that storm was going to come. He knew they were going to be afraid. Just like me going up that tree, wanting to come down, but my dad come up and saying, no, you've got to face this. Jesus knew what they were going to go through, and he took them there anyways. What do we do with this? For some of us, it'll make us angry makes us angry at God. Like, what kind of compassionate, loving God would lead us into the eye of the worst storm in our lives? One of my favorite passages is in Isaiah chapter 43. God gave me this passage. I'd never read it before. And, um, I was getting ready to quit my job. This was almost 10 years ago. Getting ready to quit my job, move across the country to help plant a church. I was scared. Like I was giving up security, giving up financial security and safety 
I was leaving my family behind, and I was scared. And I remember one morning at worship, we were doing communion, and I, I opened up my Bible, and these words just jumped off the page to me. This is a promise in Isaiah that God gives to his people. This is what he says. He says, but now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, he who formed you, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I remember sitting there and reading those words and just thinking, oh man, when I pass through the waters. You notice that he doesn't say, if you pass through the waters. He doesn't say you won't pass through the waters. Instead, he says, when? It's like a guarantee. When you're living in this life, in this broken world, you will pass through times in your life that are hard, that are difficult, that produce suffering, that are challenging and stretching. But don't, let, don't miss the heart of God in this. Because do you hear what he says? He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be near to you. I'm never going to leave your side. You are mine. I know you by name. I know everything about you. I love you deeply. I love you so deeply. When you pass through the waters, when that storm is raging, for some of you that's right now, some of you are sitting in here right now, and the storm of your life is raging, and you're crying out in your own heart, God, where are you? God, why are you so distant from me? Why won't you exercise your power to free me from this? And what he says to you, he says, I love you and I am with you. Again, the temptation is to be frustrated with God. And I love this quote. Tim Keller has this beautiful quote. He says, if you have a God that is great enough and powerful enough to be mad at because he doesn't stop your suffering, you also have a God who's great enough and powerful enough to have reasons that you can't understand. You can't have it both ways. Our very anger with God reveals the fact that we believe he's bigger than us and more powerful than us. And if this is true, then it must also be true that he has reasons that are beyond our current understanding, but the promise that he gives us in the midst of this storm, that he is right there with you. He's beside you. And so this question that Jesus asked of why are you afraid He's trying to take the disciples deeper, and it's really what he's saying is, you, st you still don't know how much I love you. It's easy to read this passage of, do you still have no faith, and kind of feel like Jesus is attacking the disciples a little bit. But what he's saying is, guys, don't you, don't you see it yet? Don't, you still don't see it. You still don't see how much I love you. You still don't see how much I care, because if you knew how much I loved you, you could have peace even in the middle of the ra most raging storms. Do you know how much Jesus loves you? Do you have any idea? See, we, we have an advantage over the disciples, don't we? We can back away from this story and we know how it ends. We see Jesus voluntarily walking right into the fiercest storm that anyone could face. 
He's completely betrayed by everybody that he loves. He faces suffering at the hands of people that just want to be cruel to him. They spit on him. They beat him. He suffers through one of the cruelest deaths on a cross in agony and pain, totally alone. Jesus voluntarily bows his head into the most severe storm that any of us could ever imagine. And he does it for us. He does it for you. He knows you by name. When that image of Jesus bowing to that storm is burned into our brains, we'll never have to ask the question again of, Jesus, don't you care? Because the answer is yes. I care more than you could know. I love you more than you could know. And I know this is hard. I've been there. Trust me. But I am with you. I am walking by your side. And so in their despair, the disciples are met with Jesus' compassion. He got up. He met them where they were. They're met with his power, his authority to do something. And they're met with this challenge of saying, don't you know how much I love you? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid I'm with you. We're going to finish with verse 41, the very last part of this story. After all this happened, it says the disciples were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. It's funny that the word terrified here is actually a greater fear than what they felt in the face of the storm. And in a way, it's an appropriate response, right? Why were they afraid of the storm? They were afraid of the storm because it was more powerful than them and they couldn't control it. And then this man on their boat shows that he's more powerful than the storm and they can't control him. They're terrified. But see, this is the good news about Jesus. He is more powerful than any storm. You can't control him, but the difference in the two is this. The storm does not love you, and Jesus does. The storm doesn't give a rip about you, and Jesus laid down his life for you. But they're terrified because of the power that is shown in who Jesus is. And they ask this question, who is this? Who is this man? I, I don't know what you've imagined Jesus to be. The disciples had ideas of what they'd imagined Jesus, who he was and what he would be and that sort of thing. And I, I don't know. All of us come to Jesus with preconceived ideas of what he should be like. But it doesn't matter what your imagination has imagined. Jesus is more. He's more compassionate. He's more powerful. He's more loving. He is bigger. He is infinitely greater than anything you've imagined. So when you come to him and you hear this question, who is this man? Ask it with an open mind and an open heart. Let's not put Jesus in a box that says that he's going to be what we want him to be because he is more powerful than the fiercest raging storm you can imagine. And he's more loving than you ever, ever fathomed. He loves you immensely. As, as we go to communion today, I want us to take two questions. Some of you right now, you've given your life to Jesus. You're trying to follow him, and yet you're in the middle of a storm, and there's suffering in your life. And Jesus comes, and he says to you, why are you so afraid? He, he wants to take you deeper into his heart for you. He's saying, why are you so afraid? Don't you know how much I love you? Don't you know? I'm never going to leave your side. Why are you so afraid? And so if you're in that camp this morning, if, if you're afraid, if you're hurting, just ask him, ask Jesus, Jesus, where are you? Find someone to pray with. We're gonna be up here at the respond banner. If you need prayers, it's okay if your prayer is, I'm not sure that I can believe in Jesus right now. I'm having a hard time. Man, we'd love to pray with you about that. 
We'd love to encourage you in that. And Jesus will meet you in his compassion right there where you are. So some of us, the question we need to hear this morning is, why are you so afraid? Don't you know how much I love you? For some of us, the question we need to hear is, who is this man? Some of us have have given our lives to Jesus, but we've kind of given it to him on our terms, on who we've imagined him to be and who we want him to be in our lives. But in this story, he is showing us he is way more than you can control, way more than you've imagined. Will you let him truly have the reins of your life? Will you let him make the calls in your life? Will you let him be who he really is? Some of you are far from Jesus. You're skeptical. You have lots of questions. And this is a question that you're wrestling with. Who is this? Is this a real story? It is a real story. This is who Jesus is. And I I, I encourage you, I beg you, just ask the question openly. Take it to God. Take it to Jesus. Jesus, who are you? Ask him to show himself, to make himself real. Ask him to show you his compassion, his power, his love. And have an open heart that he'll do it. And just have eyes open to see what he might want to do. So I'm going to pray for us. And the band's going to come up and we'll worship some more. But communion is set up around the room. Let's go to communion. And let's just ask Jesus, would you come and encourage us in the middle of our storms? And would you show us the depth and the magnitude of who you really are? Let's let's pray.